If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's what happened to like a Rex Ryan, where he's an NFL guy. Why would the, why would the guy in the White House ever say anything about NFL players. Yeah, somebody who's the son of a coach, the brother of a coach, and his whole life has just been NFL oxygen. And when when has this country ever come for him? Yeah. Never. So uh, if, if if you don't have that concern, why would you ever invest in having it? Um, because it's not something you have to worry about. You don't have to ever worry about, you know, becoming the next group that no one likes. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to Michael Lee, the senior NBA writer with The Vertical at Yahoo Sports, about his column, which is called Why NBA Players Should Be Allowed to Take a Knee. It is blistering. Also, we speak to return guest Lindsey Gibbs from Think Progress about Cam Newton, his sexist comment, and the racism that surrounded some of the pushback to him, as well as some of the old tweets that existed among reporter Jordan Rodriguez, who was subject to Cam's sexism. We're going to try to unpack all of that. It ain't easy. I also have some choice words about a hideous argument being used against NFL protesters that they will be responsible for the re-election of Donald Trump in 2020. I'm going to tear that up. And I got my Just Stand Up, Just Sit Down awards. I got Kaepernick watch and so much more. But first, let's start with Michael Lee. And now... We have the senior NBA writer with the vertical at Yahoo Sports, Michael Lee. Michael, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Doing wonderful. Great. You wrote this tremendous column, Why NBA Players Should Be Allowed to Take a Knee, and I'm just going to read some of your prose to you. (laughs) And it's, it's really great stuff. You wrote, The NBA already has a cap on salaries. No similar lid should be placed on dissent. If a player is so moved by the current climate to take a knee, sit on the bench, or even stay in the locker room during the national anthem, the league should respect and applaud that courage, not punish it. These are serious times, and the protests against racial inequality and police brutality shouldn't be reduced to some bogus patriotism litmus test. Wow. So, so no mincing words from you on this one, Mike. Yeah, it was a tough thing for me to write because I usually just try to stay the my lane and stick with sports and stats and maybe a corny joke about somebody's shoes or haircut and um but you know this was i was moved um yeah what compelled you because this is um, not your typical lane as it were because i'm a regular reader yeah yeah no i usually like to just let players talk and do a feature and you know get out the way but um, I just feel like that the conversation, the discourse, everything got dumbed down. And it was infuriating for me to just listen to people make it about what it wasn't, to make it right. about the flag, to make it about the national anthem. And, um, and I wound up talking to an editor about it and just, 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 just not even saying I want to write about it. Just I was just discussing it. 
And, um, and he said, you should write that. And then I was talking to one of my friends and kind of saying the same thing. And he's like, why don't you write that? And I kept coming up with kind of weak excuses for why I shouldn't write it. But I really was just convincing myself that I should write it. And, um, and then I sat down and tried to figure out how to say it tactfully, you know, um, because I'm pretty passionate about some things that I don't reveal, like on Twitter or anywhere else. Um, but I didn't want to say anything that could be misinterpreted. And I wanted to right. make sure that if I got my point across that I did it in a way that uh, people may respond to um, the way I would, I would want them to respond. Well, let's talk about response. So this is a three-part question. I want to ask you how readers responded, how any players may have responded to it, if at all, and then how NBA Brass responded to it, if at all. If you can give us a three-part answer there. Let's start with your readership, because I'm fascinated about this, because we're hearing about a lot of sports writers getting pushback for writing what you wrote, but part of me is wondering if maybe the NBA audience is just a little more, I'll say this though, a little less brittle, if you will, than NFL fans in terms of trying to hear nuance. Um, Well, honestly, you know, I, I learned from just my time covering the NBA and being a writer that uh, I try to avoid the comment section at all times. I try to stay away from it. I've, I always describe the comment section as uh, being blindfolded, walking into a closet where everyone has clubs and um, and chains, and they're ready to do, to beat you down. Yeah. So unless you can somehow go in there uh, and, and expect something different, don't do it. So um, a lot of times, even if I just write a but random... this article, you must have been tempted just to peek and see what people were saying. I was, but it goes back to a conversation I had with a friend, um, you know, a few months ago about something that wasn't related to this. It was, uh, we were having an argument about, argument about the MVP debate. And, um, <laughs> and then uh, towards the end, he, he said, well, you know, I really don't care what you say because I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and that's how I felt about this. I really don't care what anybody said if they disagreed because I feel like I'm right. Mm-hmm. And um, and but I haven't heard too much uh, feedback. I got a lot of you know retweets, and it probably got more comments you know on um, the story than anything I've ever written. But at least at the uh, at, at Yahoo. But um, I, I try to stay away from that because. I don't mind ever having an argument with somebody or having a conversation about something that I write or something that I say. Um, I feel like it helps me strengthen my argument. It helps me, um, you know, get better. Um, but I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to this, I saw a couple of comments and most of them were, again, what frustrated me about the entire conversation where people say, you know, oh, that's not the right time to do it. It's not the right place to do it. You know, you're at work. You know, you got to respect, you know, your employers. The work thing and is absurd. I want to ask all of these people, how many of you have to say the national anthem when you go to work in the morning? None of us do. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and you don't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. You don't do anything. Um, and I, I felt like when you go, go back to the history of how the national anthem became spart- part of sporting events. Sure. Um, and the fact that, you know, if you pay attention to people during the national anthem at sporting events, they're, most of them aren't standing in attention. No. Most of them aren't taking their hats off and putting their hand on their heart. Most of them are like, hey, can I rush to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, can I get to the concession stands right now? Because they really come to see the game. I don't, no one pays money to go 
listen to the national anthem. You go to get entertained by the performance. So what about players and what about NBA brass? What kind of response do you get on those fronts? I haven't heard anything since I've written from the NBA brass. I, I did hear stuff before I wrote it um, because it was right around the time that the memo had gotten out. And I read the memo. And when I read the memo, actually. The Adam Silver, Michelle Roberts yeah. memo, to uh, be clear. Yeah, the Adam Silver memo. Or actually, uh, Mark, Mark Tatum uh, memo he sent out to teams that basically said that um you know what they encourage teams oh got it got it so not not the memo that encouraged social activism but the memo that that reminded people yeah it encouraged social activism and it reminded people that they needed that there are anthem rules got it and it that's that part it was like probably the 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 10th or 12th thing on a um you know on a list of, of things they wanted to do so it wasn't like they it was like the number one agenda that they were trying to get across. They really were just trying to encourage players to be involved in the community and to do other things and uh, just basically what they would suggest um, in terms of handling uh, the protests and things. So it it actually kind of made me take a step back about what I was going to write because I was like, well, I don't want to go too hard and, and slam mm-hmm. in the league. Um, but then I, then I was like, but you know what? <laughs> I think this is, needs to be said. Right. And for my listeners who don't know, uh, the NBA and the NFL differ on this anthem question in terms of what their rules are and what's been collectively bargained. Like in the NFL, there actually is no requirement that they do anything for the anthem. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. And um, and in the NBA, though, it states explicitly – perhaps you can explain, like what is the letter of the law in the NBA? Um, that you must stand in an orderly fashion. Players, coaches, trainers all must stand in an orderly fashion during the national anthem. Um, it's been a rule that's been in place for decades, so it's not something that just came up. It's not a reaction to what's been going on um, now. Um, it's not a response to anything that – you know, like any, the NFL, like, hey, yeah. we got money from the Department of Defense in 2009. Yeah. Let's do this. You know? Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the things, too, that it always surprises me because I remember reading an article about Kaepernick in the Washington Post a few months ago or a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed Mark Cuban. And Mark Cuban was like, well, you know, Colin Kaepernick would be accepted in, in, if, uh, in the NBA. You know, um, you know, that kind of activism, that kind of statement wouldn't be shunned in the NBA. And I was stunned when I read the comment because when I think about this whole thing and Kaepernick, I have to go back 20 years to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, sure. who was a victim of – had his career ruined or ended because he refused to stand for the national anthem. Now, he had a silent protest. He just sat down, um, and he was – and when he explained why he did it, uh, he caught hell. Yeah. And, and – um, he was such a fun player to watch because I remember Chris Jackson at LSU in the comparisons to Pistol Pete. And and, uh, and a few years ago, I remember uh, Phil Jackson that talked about Steph Curry, and he said he kind of reminded me of Chris Jackson. And and fans just kind of went – you know, went all in on Phil Jackson. I was like, you guys did not watch Chris yeah, Jackson. fans got stupid about it. They were talking about, like, Raouf's three-point percentage as if that was even, like, a part of – if that was, like, a practiced regular part of the NBA when he was playing, he would have been a 40% three-point shooter exactly. without blinking. It just yeah. – it operated in a different way back yeah, then, and people game. don't understand that at but all. if you watch the way he – Like, I think Larry Bird shot, like – 18% from three one year. Really? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, it just, it just, just because it operated differently. You weren't trying to get open, clear looks for three. Yeah. And he, his game was just so, like, fun to watch. And, um, but, yeah, but 
I always I always liked his game and I always hated the fact that his career was cut short um, in the NBA because he mm. was willing to take a stand. So two years after he did that, he was out of the league. Yeah. So so let, let me ask you this. Uh, you talked about what the NBA rules were. As we're doing this particular podcast right now, uh, news just came out of J.R. Smith giving an explanation for why he stood several feet behind his teammates, and he was quite explicit about it. He said there's a gap between what that flag is and what the lived experiences of people who are subject to racism in this country are. Like He was very straight up that, yes, this is a protest during the anthem because of that flag and what it actually represents to people in my community. Like It was just very – gave no quarter, but he also – just did this thing where he stood two feet behind his teammates. So let me ask you, do you think J.R. Smith was still operating within the framework and letter of the NBA law? And I have a follow-up, but I'll start stop there. Um, I believe that he, that he is, um, but uh, in the same respect that David West, um, you know, quietly had his own protest uh, for years. Um, at least it's what he said, that he stood two feet behind his teammates and that he said that at one uh, one point, he told this to uh, Mark Spears undefeated. He told him that at one point, Chris Paul told him to you know step forward to be with the rest of the team during it, but he wanted to make his own quiet statement, silent statement. So, and he wasn't fine, to my understanding. So, as long as it doesn't look like he's doing anything during that period, he's not taking a knee, he's not sitting down, he's not doing anything that most fans would even recognize unless he drew attention to it, I don't think that there would necessarily be a response because I think at the end, he's still standing. Okay, just really quick. Larry Bird's seasons, seasons two through five. Check this out. 27% from three, 21%, 29%, 25%. And then, of course, he had other seasons of like 43%, 42%. I mean, it's just like it, it didn't operate. Yeah. In the same, so people were like, Chris Jackson shot 35% from three. I'm just sort of like, and so? Most of those were like turnaround pull-ups, and it's just, it just was a different way. It was. Or la- like end of the shot clock, you know, ex- uh, desperation shots. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants oh my to God. bring up numbers from that era about three-pointers. Three it's so silly. <laughs> Larry Bird, um, numerous years, averaged under one, one or fewer three-point shots per game. Like, you think yeah. today Larry Bird would, would shoot 0.73s <laughs> per game. It's just, it's just a ridiculous statistic. Yeah. Um, moving on from that, because that just is something that bothers me. But So let's say a player did something more confrontational, which unfortunately we now have the idea of a peaceful protest of taking a knee in the same even lexicon <laughs> as confrontational yeah. um, in this world of all worlds of 21st century America. Let me ask you this. If a player did do that, what do you think would happen? Would Adam Silver actually follow through it would be so against character of the kind of commissioner he's trying to be but he also is reminding players that he wants this court to be politics free so that's the first question do you think silver would would go full stern on the players full david stern and the second question is would that rupture this shiny happy cozy relationship with michelle roberts and this idea that they're together (laughs) building this social justice league um, well, a couple of things. I, I thought that Adam Silver sort of put himself in a box where he has to punish someone who violates the rule the minute he came out and made that you know, clear. And I think that there's no coincidence that he made those comments coming out of the Board of Governors meetings because I'm sure that the owners made it clear that they wanted to make it clear to the players that this rule is in place 
and that the NBA has had this rule in place for decades. Um, and then if he does have to punish someone or, or find someone or do whatever, um, he's created another storm. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's made it bigger than what it, it, it needs to be. Um, I think that if he had said nothing and, you know, as the season started or as the preseason started and players just took knees, the story would have been over. I, I don't know if guys are committed to doing it for an entire season the way Kaepernick did. I don't know. Um, it's so different because with all the respect in the world I have of Cap doing it for four straight months, I mean, you're asking people 82 times. <laughs> exactly. I, I think, to do I a think, protest think, that John Carlos and Tommy Smith did once. You're asking yes. them to do it 82 times in front of uh, 42 different fan bases. Or yeah. No, less than that. But you know what I'm saying. Like some yeah. crazy number of fan bases. Yeah. It, it, would, it would just be an intense prospect. It would. And, then, and it would have to be linked to something too, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I, but I think, I think that he created a problem by coming out with that statement because it almost challenged the players. And then Michelle Roberts has basically said, um, you know, that if anybody, if the league decides to punish anybody for taking a knee or anything, the union is going to fight. So now you've taken what should have been just a silent protest by a player uh, to make a statement. Um, You've turned it into something where now you're trying to prohibit their speech, their free speech. And then you want to go and have a fight with the union. And then you just want to have another battle and bring more negative publicity to the league. When I think that you've kind of built yourself as this progressive league, you have a number of players who aren't afraid to voice their opinions. Um, You had a, your, your, biggest star uh called donald trump a bum mm-hmm. you know in on twitter you had the uh steph curry and kevin durant both come out and say they were opposed to going to the white house and had and there was no punishment for that so i think that now you've sort of boxed yourself in to creating the controversy when there didn't necessarily need to be one um but i find it interesting that but you think he's boxed himself in you think if a player protests there will be punishment because because there have been situations in the past where you remember Eric Gardner case where um, the grand jury refused to indict the cop to put him in a stranglehold. And then a few days later, Derek Rose shows up wearing an I can't, can't breathe, breathe t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few days after that, LeBron James wore an I can't breathe t-shirt. And then a couple of the Brooklyn Nets, the Cleveland Cavaliers, they were all wearing I can't breathe shirts. And it's a clear violation of rules. Right. Um, if you're on court before the game, you must wear your team attire. You can't put anything over it. And that's that was just part of the rules, but these players at that point were were moved. You mm-hmm. know, they 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 felt that they had to say something. And sometimes it's not necessarily what you say, but the, the a silent gesture goes a long way towards getting a point across. Now this happened. Adam Silver wasn't necessarily happy that they violated the rules, but he did nothing. And you know what? The players didn't wear I can't breathe shirts for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. It just lasted for maybe a couple of weeks. And then they moved on to whatever the next thing was with this. If if players take a knee, then all of a sudden (laughs) now, if you're challenged, you challenge your players, they come back and say, well, here, this is what I'm going to do. I think what what he's done is he's probably upset his players more than anything, because I think they had a perception of him that he was sort of on their side or kind of player friendly. Yeah. But now in this respect, you know, because it's such a personal thing, it's not that. You know, just because these guys make a lot of money and they're millionaires, they're not protected from 
you know, they still are black men in America. They still have to walk these streets. They still have to, um, you they know, have kids. They have kids. They have friends. Yeah. They have family members. They have brothers. They have cousins. Anybody that's going to be subject to this, but they're they're subject to this. I mean, yeah. Thabo Cephalosha, NBA player, you know, um, who wound up having his leg broken before a playoff run because a cop just started hitting him with a baton without asking any questions. So he's a multi million dollar NBA player. And he got beat up by a cop just for being outside of a club. So it could happen to any of them. Guys could, I, I heard rumors that there was talk among players about doing something after Tabo's leg was broken. He's got a lot of friends in the league. Did you hear similar stuff? Because I know some folks were surprised that there wasn't like a, kind of like a protest response by players. Yeah, um, I was surprised there wasn't much um, said or done um, after that happened. I remember... Um, I had written a story for the Post, and I had talked to Rasul Butler, and I got some comments from LeBron and a couple other players about, um, you know, the incident and just why it was personal to them. It was probably one of the most one of the most click stories I had at the Post um, at the time, and I, I think people there was an audience for it. People were interested to hear what players had to say because it sort of was just something that happened, but it wasn't turned into a big deal when this was the top team in the league. This was a sixty win team that year or second best team, top team in the East. And he and was they, the LeBron stopper. He, yeah, well, yeah. That was his, you know, yeah. that's why they brought he him in He was an there. important, you know, piece to, to their to their run, and he got taken away right before the playoffs got started. They lost in the second round. And that whole time I'm like, this is a big deal. Like, this is a big deal to lose uh, a player like this. He's not, he's not a superstar player, but to have a cop break his leg during the season – and there was there was not enough made of that. And in, a, and in the context of a season where players are wearing these I can't breathe shirts, like when I first heard <laughs> what happened to Thabo, I thought this story is going to be volcanic. Yeah. And then it, it wasn't. Kind of wasn't. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember much written about it. I think, you know, months later, I think after he settled or got his settlement from uh, the New York. Um, yeah, yeah. There were articles. There I were just articles, thought it would yeah. become like this touchstone. And if you yeah. think about it, like every time a player now in the NFL or anywhere is asked, you're some rich pampered athlete, what do you care about police <laughs> brutality? They could just go Tabo immediately. Yeah. As like an immediate talking point. It, like, yeah, his it, leg broken before the playoffs. Did and, that not happen? And, the, and, you know, I'm pretty sure if you lined up every NBA player and say, have you ever had any kind of encounter with the police? I'm pretty sure a good majority say yes. Well, you I know, Atan Thomas and I do that as a point of course when we interview players on on WPFW's The Collision. And yes, everybody has a story. Yeah, everybody has a story, and a lot of them are stories where you feel like one itchy trigger finger away from absolute calamity. Yeah, like, I, I have brought a couple up to of stories brink. myself just from you know being a black man in America. I mean, it's just it's just that that's why I, I was wondering. It was so peculiar that Adam would make that statement. Because it sort of diminished the movement, but it also diminished that this is a predominantly black league in this situation. It personally affects the guys who he represents. Well, let me ask you this. The other big news I was going to hit you with if we didn't get that breaking news about J.R. Smith was, (laughs) of course, Kobe Bryant saying that he would kneel. So my first question to you is Kobe saying I'd kneel. First question 
is do you read that as a clapback on Adam Silver? Like this, like would he not have even have felt the need to say anything if Silver was like, "Whoa, that's between the players and their community and their lord." You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. I'm having nothing to do with this. Like, do you do you see it as a clapback? Do you read it as a clapback? No, I read it as you know Kobe really stepping out and saying things. You know, because he's he's never been that guy to. Uh, make a political statement. I mean, he always seemed to have so much at stake, and you sort of saw him in the later stages of his career, where he sort of became like a, a old grandmother, you know, where you know, just an old foul mouth grandmother who doesn't mm-hmm. care anymore. That's sort of what Kobe became toward the end. Yeah. But I think that now he's that he stepped away from the game, and that you know he has you know young kids. I mean, you saw after um, you know uh, Donald Trump made the comments, you know, the sob comments. He went on Twitter and, you know, said that, you know, if you can't, if you're going to divide us and separate us, you can't ever make America great again. Mm-hmm. And that, I was stunned that that will come from Kobe because for his entire career, he kind of took the Michael Jordan, you know, way mm-hmm. route, you know, where he just wasn't going to be a political guy. Um, he was just going to play his game and let his game do the talking. But I just think that as you get older, um, you mature, you realize uh, your purpose. And I think that for him to say that is bold. But he also doesn't have much to lose now. That's my other question is uh, our Kobe Bryant, the uh, foul mouth grandmother, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> As, let me ask you, do you think that Kobe would kneel if he was still playing today? And, of course, still at the top of his game and the Lakers being a playoff team, all that stuff, everything going great for Kobe in Lakerland. Do you think he kneels? I don't think he does it. I don't think, I don't think number eight Kobe does I think maybe maybe if it's the last two years, maybe number twenty four does, but I have a hard time seeing him doing. And and honestly, it's not a, it's not a, not an attack on any players now. Uh, I don't see many star players really stepping out and doing anything that uh, like that because and not and not because they don't care or not because they're not involved, but I just don't think they feel that 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 gesture would would do anything would change mm. anything. Um, I think is that, that something you're hearing from older generation well, of players? I mean, I've heard it. From, Obviously, not Bill Russell, who yeah. was photographed kneeling. Now, when he did that to me, I was like, okay, th- th- that's what made Adam Silver's comment seem so terrible. It's like, yo, Bill Russell is the greatest winner of all time. He's got the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and he's taking a knee. And you're going to all of a sudden tell these players not to take a knee? Like, you put Bill Russell up every finals, hand yep. out the Finals MVP trophy because this guy is. Mm-hmm. The model of what this league should be about. They also bring him in to talk to the rookies. Yeah. I mean, everybody respects Bill Russell, but no one's going to deny that he's not um, down for every cause, you know. Uh, but I think that that, that, that was a problem. So, I, but I don't see most of the stars actually doing that. I don't see them stepping out and doing it. Uh, I saw the Warriors, um, Andre Iguodala, Draymond Green, after um, they, uh, they didn't do anything um, after their first preseason game. And most of them just said, you know, we feel like that's been done. You know, mm-hmm. we support Cap. You know, we we uh, appreciate what he did to, to get this message out there. But it doesn't have to be done anymore. We got to find something productive to to, to um, bring about change. And taking a knee is not going to do it. And where where is the knee right now for you? Is it is it about racism and police? That's what I know. All of us are are scrambling to try to refocus people on that this knee is about racism and yeah, police brutality. I mean when Jerry course, Jones I feel like it, we're yeah I feel like we're kind of, it's almost like 
people like you and I who are, are like, yo, this is about racism, criminal justice system, police violence. It's almost <laughs> I feel like we're trying to grab water and yeah. pull it to one side. <laughs> it's this it, – it, you can't get your arms around it. I mean is it – at this point in your mind, is it about Trump? Is it about the First Amendment? Is it still um, about fighting racism? Can it be all of these things at the same time or do you think that then creates a, a disillusion of the movement? I think it's I think it's been watered down by people who don't want that message to get out. Um, I, I, like when I see Jerry Jones say it, uh, get on his knee, and it's it's almost like I read somebody said it's like the, the dab of uh, 2017. It's like after a while you start seeing a lot of like Andy Reid doing a dab. Okay, it's it's dead now. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, the dab's no longer cool. Um, and I think that when you see Jerry Jones take a knee or for whatever, you don't even know what Jerry Jones is taking a knee for. And he stood up mm. and said, this is about equality or unity. He says it's about unity, but not equality, not inclusion. Not and unity fact. for what purpose? What unity with who and for yeah. what purpose? And what are you uniting against, yeah. if anything? And what's unity without inclusion? Yes. Like if I'm not, not going to get equal rights under the law, then how are we united? And what's unity when you're a voice against signing Colin Kaepernick and you didn't even interview a black coach according to the Rooney rule when you hired Jason Garrett? Like what, what is unity in that context? Yeah, so I, so I think that a lot of people have done a lot to d- distract um, from the message. You know, um, people have so, – so in terms of taking a knee, for me, I know what it represents. But I think to a lot of people now, they, they sort of feel like that the message has been diluted and um, – uh, bastardized or I call I call it protest gentrification mm-hmm. where you know people have kind of come in and decided to just completely change whatever the message is because people don't want to hear it and um and I, I think that's that's the main thing um nobody wants to talk about it nobody wants to address the racial inequality the systemic racism that has held black people back in this country for so long but also the fact that you know, we have a justice system now that basically provides no punishment. Um, it doesn't do anything. Cops are now incentivized. Yeah. You know, if you kill somebody, you get off and you get time off. Um, and there's no punishment, no matter how bad a person you might be. You could be the most awful human being, but as long as you wear a badge, you can go out there and kill anybody and, and never have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, no matter what the facts are, if you say, I was scared as this person ran away from me and I shot them in the back, as long as you say that, yeah, you're good. they will acquit you. Yeah, and I, and I, I felt like my life was in danger as this person, as this 100-pound woman holding a paring knife was yelling in the back of her kitchen. Yeah. So I shot her seven times. I'm talking about the Charlena Lyles case in yeah, Seattle. Then, like then we they have can situations say where you know, a Dylan Roof shoots up a church and he gets arrested. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they find a way to de-escalate things. Yeah. With white suspects in a way that you don't see with black suspects. And that's one of the things that Doug Baldwin of the Seahawks has been talking about, which is he's like like is de-escalation even taught now at police academies or yeah. is it is it just a deadly force? And I understand I understand it's a difficult job. I mean, I have family members who have been in law enforcement, you know, for years. Um, and I know that it's a tough job. I know it's a scary job. Um, my uncle, uh, in Kansas city has been an officer, you know, um, protecting the mayor Mm -hmm. for a long time. So I know that that's not something that, you know, any of us would willingly just do, you know, it's a job, it's a tough job. And I understand there are pressures that come with it, but there also should be 
yeah. consequences I mean, be, being, for making being mistakes. Being a surgeon is a tough job, but if you kill if, people on the operating table, there should be repercussions for that. Yeah, if you got a yeah, if you kill a lot of people just on the operating table, or you're yeah. negligent, or you're reckless. Being a you, firefighter is a tough job, but if they find out you're setting fires just because you like putting them out so much, <laughs> you're done. Exactly, I'm with you. I'm, My I'm, wife's a teacher. Like if she starts just not teaching students, <laughs> she's gonna <laughs> lose her job. Yeah, if you if you're not good at your job, you shouldn't oh. really hold on to it forever. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. You have this amazing line in your piece, and I, I really just want to encourage people to read it, and we'll, we'll tweet it out again because it's a terrific piece of writing. Thank uh, you. Where, where you this is what you wrote: No acceptable form of protest exists for those opposed to change. Those in power certainly shouldn't make the rules of protest. Would your advice to Adam Silver basically be? Do not have an opinion about this because it's not your space to have an opinion about this. If or if you don't like it, feel free to say so. But it's their decision to do what they want to do. Yeah, I, and, I and it's not your place to coerce them to do what you want them to do. Would that be what the maybe the advice you'd give to Silver at this point? I, I just felt that if I could give, I'm not, I'm not really in the business of advising him, but I would just say that in this in this instance, you know, try to talk to your players and get a sense of why they would want to take a knee before you mm. tell them not to. Because I don't think that this was done with having a conversation with, say, a J.R. Smith before he did this. Mm. You know, try to understand why this is personal for black athletes. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't just some issue that you can just say, oh, this is like I'm protesting, um, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. any, any, you could throw any random issue. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a knee because we got to raise funding for anything. I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to be very cynical about white ignorance, you know, like where they're like, I have no idea there's, there's racism, you know, and that's why, you know, I, whatever. <laughs> but like when I hear someone like Dan Gilbert say publicly without shame, I didn't know racism existed until I got voicemails about LeBron's tweet about the president. I mean, I have to ask you, do you take that at face value? Because it, 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 I feel like it damns Gilbert either way. Either he's being profoundly disingenuous. I mean, he's from Detroit, for goodness <laughs> sakes. For him not to know the existence of racism is staggering to me. And he yeah. was a Trump supporter, which, I mean, was he completely oblivious to the critiques of Trump? But then on the flip side, if it is, if he was just being honest and earnest, I mean, that's also very damning, that you can own an NBA team and have such little knowledge of the lives of your players. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of the latter more than anything. You think it's anything. the latter? Yeah, just I, just, I just don't think that blindness. you have like a human interaction with these guys. You don't have that kind right. of, you know, you don't see them as much more than guys out there making you money, you know. Um, and I think that that's something, I don't know how that's fixed, but I, I, I do know that when I see like these NFL owners – you know, after Trump, you know, blasted these players, all of a sudden they're on the sidelines when they donated a million dollars to, you know, Trump's right. campaign. I'm like, so this is where you draw the line? Right. Like, this is this is where you or say Or someone enough. like Rex Ryan, who like the former coach who's on the pregame show saying about Trump, like, I didn't sign up for this. This yeah. is like, like really like outrage. Like you call players SOBs? Uh-uh. Not the guys I know. Yeah. And it's it, like there was a part of me that just like th- was like really cynical about this. Like, oh, yeah, right. You know, you're just upset because it's upsetting your house. But then I think about like times in history, like Germany in the 30s, where people literally were blind what was happening to other people. 
like you know minorities, gay people, political people, obviously Jewish people, but then when it hit their communities, mm-hmm. then they're like, "Oh my God, yeah, this yeah. is shocking." And yeah. it was, it's, and I think maybe I think, there's something just some human beings that's just part of their character. Yeah, but also you got to think about it like this. I know that you know, like I said, growing up as a as a black man in America, or just growing up as part of a vulnerable group minority in this country. You're aware that just be, if people come at you, you know they're willing to go at everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we, we like, as a, like I've seen the way people react to it, you know Muslims now, and I feel you know empathy for them because I know that right now your anger may be geared towards them, but I know eventually it'll come back to me. If I see people are immigrants, you know. And now people are steering their anger towards immigrants. I know, okay, you're angry with them, but I know that any moment your anger can come back to me. And so if you're part of one of those vulnerable groups, you're sensitive to these things. If you're not, you're you're not ever worried that they're going to come after you. But you're stunned when they actually do. And I think that's what happened to like a Rex Ryan where he's an NFL guy. Why would the, why would the guy in the White House – ever say anything about NFL players. Yeah, somebody who's the son of a coach, the brother of a coach, and his whole life has just been NFL oxygen. And when when has this country ever come for him? Yeah. Never. So uh, if you you don't have that concern, why would you ever invest in having it? Um, Because it's not something you have to worry about. You don't have to ever worry about, you know, becoming the next group that no one likes. Um. First of all, thank, thank you so much for your time. I, I got one last uh, serious question for you. All right. Because, um, you know, we, we've gotten away from the NBA. We're talking about just protest in sports generally. Um, I'm one of those people who for months has uh, defended Colin Kaepernick's silence about all of this because I just, first of all, feel like it's anybody's right to be silent, be loud, say what they want to say. And I also felt like his silence was kind of a political statement unto itself that it acts as a political statement. And then after all of the NFL protests, when it blew up that big, there was a part of me thinking like, well, Colin, you, you kind of started this. And you know, there's such a need for leadership right now, such a need for someone to say basically something like, hey, I, I am so moved by what happened, but let's please remember this isn't about Donald Trump. This is about Tamir Rice. Mm-hmm. Like even a statement as simple as that, I think would have sent shockwaves through mm-hmm. all, the entire discussion yeah. about this. Um, so where are you right now on Colin Kaepernick's silence? Would you like to hear him speak? And if so, in what venue? Or are you cool with the posture he's taking at this point? I'm cool with uh, Kaepernick um, laying low and staying in the shadows. Um, because I, while we may want him to come out and voice his opinion on matters, I still think that the most powerful statement that he has made in the past 18 months is saying nothing. It is by sitting out on the sidelines during the national anthem and later taking a knee. Those two statements were louder than anything that he said. And I think that the message that he delivered by doing that had more power than any of the comments that he made in explaining it because no one wants to listen to that anyway. Right. Um, and I That's think that- the best argument against him speaking out is that the people who love him will love what he says. And there, there's no space for people who are going to be convinced by anything. He yeah. Says. And, and, and also 
his he wants to play football to my understanding he wants to be back in the game he doesn't want you know the people who would eventually give him a chance to just see him as the the guy who took a knee they want he wants them to see him as a football player because that's what he is you know um and i think that he used his platform to spread a message that nobody else was willing to to te- to, to make at that point um so if you want to play football <clears throat> and you don't want to be the knee guy forever, then this is probably the best chance. If you just want to be seen as someone who's going to be a football player again, you want to have that chance. Um, I think that what he's doing in the community, raising money, you know, with these programs uh, to help empower, you know, um, uh, kids, um, help them understand their rights and know, um, you know, their power and just what mm-hmm. they can do in this country that to me is more admirable than anything else. Um, to me, that says a lot more than what he could say. Um, I, and I think in a lot of ways, <laughs> the fact that there has been so much to try to distract from this conversation, um, there's been so many things done to try to make it about what it's not, he's being proven right. And there's no need for him to come in and say anything because the fight that he started or the fight that he decided to engage in um, it's it's being proven that there's a purpose to it, and now the way it's all playing out, the fact that he's been blackballed because even if even if he's hired tomorrow, um, then we know that at least for the first month of the NFL season, the league colluded, and he won't be hired in tomorrow. An I know, oh, yeah, <laughs> but the league has decided to make an example of him. Yep. I mean, how many how many sports that have? I mean, how many sports? How many professions? has such a limited number of participants. Like there are what, 450 NBA players. Uh, how many NFL players? You know, uh, how many thousand NBA players? Mm-hmm. How many guys are in the top 30 of their profession can't get a job? Right. It's unheard of. If There, there aren't that many anyway. Right. It's also unheard of <laughs> even based on the sin that that player might commit yeah. in the world. Like if you are that good, no matter – how nasty your track record, they will find a place for you. And here's someone whose track record is actually defined by altruism. Yeah. And that's why I always defended his silence because I believe that to speak, it almost gives credence to the idea that he needs to go on like the, the Tony Dungy forgiveness tour where he sits next to Daddy yeah. Dungy yeah. and white America forgives him. And he's like, I don't need to do that. Yeah, I and I shouldn't that, yeah. have to do that. And it's demeaning to do that. I just think like, this moment, I think there are people who want to know what's next because it is confusing, and I think he has the, well, the gravitas think- to maybe lay out like, hey, we need our own organization. We need um, to all tweet at the same time. Take a knee, like We take a knee because of Tamir, something that refocuses it, it but on the issue at hand. He has that, a unique power what, to do that. Is that what he wants to be, though? That's the important question. Yeah, I mean, but you know, I, Shakespeare said some are born great and some of greatness thrust upon them. You know, yeah. even if he doesn't want to be that, maybe. Yeah, but if, if, no that, if that's not, if if he feels like he wanted to draw attention to an issue, and he wanted to help others in another way, then I feel like that's the way he should go. Like you know, people jumped on him when he didn't vote. You know, and, right? Uh, and I was like, well, this was never a political movement, right? Because. This isn't a political movement. This is a right. movement about what's right, like what's morally right. Well, people are asking about like local referendums in California, and yeah. it's just it was this effort I thought to try to trap him. Yeah, 
I mean, this isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. Yeah. Like, people are dying. That should be an issue that concerns everybody. Right. Because, you know, and I And And it's not like the Democrats have been front and center on this stuff. You look at the 90s and a lot of the crime laws that went in place that made the situation worse um, for for black people. And I said it in in my column, you know, I feel like a lot of people feel that this is a black issue and it's not really my concern. And I feel like you have to understand what – you know, racial inequality does to the mindset of people in terms of destroying dreams before they're allowed to really be fulfilled. And Mm. in that case, you are hurting not only those kids who don't see hope, but you're hurting this country because they may be the next Oprah. They may Mm. be the next, you know, Jay-Z or anyone else that you think of as, as a successful black person but they just don't feel like they're going to get their opportunity. Mm. So this is bigger than just a couple of people who have been shot and killed by cops. This is bigger than, you know, a couple of people being held back um, from opportunities. Um, if you take away hope from people, you're, you're doing a much more damage to the entire country than you are to, um, you know, to just these individuals. You're holding yourself back. You're hurting this country. Um, mm. In the long run, if you don't recognize that this is a serious issue. Whew. Michael Lee, before I let you go, what music are you listening to right now? Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm always listening to Kendrick whenever I get a chance. So um, we going to be all right. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life I. Hard times like yeah. Bad trips like yeah. Every day, <laughs> like sitting there rocking back and forth in the dark, we're gonna be all right. We're gonna be all right. Yeah, that's that's that. It, but anything, anything off his latest album, um, anything off his um, other work. So yeah. Um, D- Dan, did you want to ask a question before? Um, go- going back a little bit, just to how you mentioned some of the guys in the Warriors saying essentially maybe taking the as past, but I just kind of keep coming back to, uh, got to give credit to Michael Che uh, on SNL. <laughs> like it, if the NBA, which it is a smaller league, so maybe it has a chance to do this for all the players to come together and do something together. Like what is Adam Silver going to do? Exactly. What can he possibly do? And, and, and yeah, the league, I think overall they, they do carry a lot more power than maybe their players union than other ones, but this is a time to flex their muscle. Do you see anything happening? I, you know, the other, one thing that's that you know, kind of, I don't, I don't necessarily see anything happening. I think it's surprising to me that the one player before J.R. Smith who said that he wanted to take a knee, one active player, not Kobe, one active player said he wanted to take a knee was Enos Cantor. You know, who's um, coming from Turkey and he's been in this country, but he felt compelled that to do something, but his teammates wanted to just lock arms. So I, I, I'll say this, protest or any kind of movement, that has to be within your heart. And if it's not something that you're moved to do, I don't want you to do it. And I think that's what I respected about Kaepernick. When I first heard about it, I was like, uh, I wonder why he's doing it. But the more I heard him speak on it, the more I realized, oh, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Okay, I actually can really get behind him because he's not somebody just flippantly or ignorantly just saying, oh, I just think black people need equality. No, he's done his research. He's done his homework, and I can respect that. But anybody, 
you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't expect all the players to be united in this because all the players aren't, don't have that in them. They're not passionately wanting to do it. I, I just felt that what drove me to write the column is that I feel like if there's one player, if there are two players, if there are 10 players, if there are 20 players who, who are so moved by this movement right now and they really want to share their, their feelings just through a silent gesture, they should have this opportunity right now, now more than any other time, because this country right now is in a really, you know, serious time, you know, um, and this is a very serious matter. And I think that by taking that opportunity away from them, um, you're doing a disservice to what they could actually do to help somebody else. Thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Yeah, thank you. Michael Lee, the senior NBA writer with the vertical at Yahoo Sports. Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I'll be looking at you from the face down. One Mac 11, even boom with the face down. Skimming, and let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a twilight. And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. This week is the food issue. We have Renee Ebersol on the court case against Monsanto. We got Ostrander on climate change and the new generation of wheat. We got Dahlia Mortada on Syrian food. Amitabha Kumar on eating beef in India. Sarah Jones on the future of food in Appalachia. I mean, it is unbelievable. If you believe in food and you believe in food justice, and believe me, I believe in both, you got to check out the new issue of The Nation magazine. And now, back to the podcast. And now I've got some choice words about literally the stupidest argument that could possibly be made against NFL protesters. Okay, look, there is a cottage industry of political journalists whose take on the state of Trump America is basically this. Don't talk about racism or it will only anger middle America and lead to Donald Trump's re-election. This is the logic of the abuser. This idea that if you talk about a bully, it'll just make things worse. And it's toxic and it should be rejected. Now, this political take has long had a safe haven in centrist politics. Their answer to why Nixon, then Reagan, then the Bushes, and now Trump were elected boils down to movement activists wanting too much too soon. These movement activists are the ones responsible for scaring the American middle into the arms of reactionaries. Now, the diagnosis for these centrists of their defeats is never that their own politics fail to offer a compelling agenda. Instead, we get scapegoating to muzzle and control people daring to offer a compelling message of change outside the control of smoky back rooms. This analysis, for lack of a better term, is now being used to attack NFL players, people who no one a year ago would have confused with movement activists for protesting during the anthem. In USA Today, a writer named Robert Robb has already staked this ground as if racing to secure its patent that if this president wins re-election in 2020, blame these NFL players. Look, forget that by 2020, Donald Trump might be impeached, in prison, or in a large hollowed-out volcano holding the world ransom with a giant frickin' laser. Instead, three years in advance of the election, Rob wants to plant the idea that it'll be the players' fault. To understand the mendacity required to make this argument, read this one tortured sentence by Rob. 
And by the way, if someone handed this in into a high school English class, this would be covered in red ink. But listen to this sentence. You don't have to be a racist to find galling the spectacle of pampered athletics making millions of dollars playing a game hosted in taxpayer-subsidized stadiums, benefiting from an antitrust exemption, ostentatiously exempting themselves from the traditional display of fidelity to our country. My God, that sentence had more twists and turns than my Aunt Sadie's challah! But let's start with the straw man bullshit in this sentence. First of all, find me one NFL player who has called those who disagree with the protests racist. You won't be able to find it. What they have said time and again is that they want this country to confront structural racism in the criminal justice system and policing. They are protesting during the anthem to speak about the gap between what the flag represents and people's actual lived experiences. We have certainly seen some of these players call online trolls racist. I mean, is that okay? Should they get written permission from this editorial writer before they come back on people who call them the N-word? Or would that just shove middle America into Trump's arms? Then there's this idea that they're pampered, which is a little class bait to justify the racial animus in this article. There's nothing pampered about what these athletes are doing. They are using their platform to raise the profile of a critical issue that's long been ignored. Far from being selfish or pampered, think about what they're sacrificing. Anonymity, endorsement dollars, and personal peace to be a voice for the voiceless. They've also been subjected to racist hate speech and death threats. I mean, this has gotten so little publicity, but the amount of NFL players and even the union that's had to bulk up on security because of death threats following Trump's speech is being utterly unreported, but it is fact. Now, Rob also ignores that while these men are professional athletes, many of them are also black men who have dealt with police violence in their own lives. Just ask Michael Bennett. And if you want to look at how risky it is to speak out about this stuff, look at the response to Michael Bennett and the ways in which people are trying to call him a liar for daring to tell the truth. It's character assassination. And this is what all of these players are dealing with for speaking out. And don't think for a second Michael Bennett wouldn't be in their bullseye if he wasn't also outspoken on the issue of structural racism more generally. But that's not the sum of the awful. It's that line that Rob says about NFL players playing in taxpayer-subsidized stadiums that really burns my ass, if I'm being really honest. It's also his little line about the NFL's antitrust exemption, which is insured because NFL owners have an army of D.C. lobbyists to make sure it stays there. Look, some of us have been writing about this issue for years, taxpayer-subsidized stadiums and the like, yet this writer is suddenly waking up to this injustice because it's a way to bash players for talking about racism. It reminds me of the way Pat Robertson can look at a 64-year-old white man who massacres 59 people at a country music concert and somehow blames, as Robertson said, quote, disrespect for our national anthem, end quote. Look, before this year is out, Colin Kaepernick is going to get blamed for Hurricane Maria, gout, and the germs that cause bad breath. This is what they do. You fight racism, they will blame you for anything. Then there's this line from this column. He writes, What is bewildering is that the NFL and the left seem to believe that they are winning this fight with Trump. Let's see. Honor the flag of the national anthem or not. Yep, Trump is certainly on the wrong side of that issue, end quote. Look, that last line was meant to be sarcastic, and it's also bereft of reality. Maybe people aren't as stupid as Rob thinks. Maybe Rob should read the very newspaper USA Today that published this tripe, because their latest poll shows that players are in fact shifting public opinion away from Trump. 
But maybe it's because Trump did not say, as Rob writes, honor the flag and the national anthem. If that's all Trump said, this entire debate would be very different. What Trump said instead was that the, quote, son of a bitch players should be fired for exercising their rights. Maybe people know the difference, but I will say this. It is incredibly dishonest journalism to rephrase Trump's argument into something much more benign than his verbatim comments. It's even worse to do so just to bash people for taking on the truth, not the fiction of what he actually said. Look, the more you read of this piece, the more you see that this line of logic comes from the fact that Rob has no analysis of the right-wing extremism represented and emboldened by Trump. He writes, quote, There are small pockets of white supremacists in the United States. They are unimportant, end quote. Lord, if only that was the case. Their lack of importance would be news not only to the victims of their violence, but the fear that spreads after it happens. But it's the last part that gives the game away. Rob writes, quote, Generally speaking, white middle Americans aren't racist. They don't long for a return to Jim Crow. They're just sick of having identity and grievance politics thrown in their faces all the time. If the left continues to tell middle Americans they are racist, Trump will be reelected, end quote. Again, repeat, no one has said middle Americans, which, by the way, is more than just white people. I just want to point that out, that lots of people of color live in middle America. Big shock. There's a place called Detroit and Chicago and Milwaukee. I mean, the cities of middle America. I mean, you can't even speak about, like, when people say middle America and they're just scared to say white people. That's, I think, part of the problem. But nobody is saying they want to return to Jim Crow. What these players are trying to raise is the issue of very real families destroyed by mass incarceration and police violence. Those little things that have destroyed thousands of lives and what Rob calls grievance politics. I know that one of the reasons that Michael Bennett is sitting during the anthem is because a Seattle resident named Charlena Lyles was killed by police. She called the police herself, concerned about an intruder, and somehow this all ended up with her being shot down in front of three of her four children. Charlena Lyles was also pregnant. Seven bullets. Four in her back. If being outraged about that is just grievance politics to rob in the Democratic Party, then they deserve to lose to Donald Trump. And we need a new party to wage the political fights being imposed by the brutal realities of the 21st century. Okay, so before we interview Lindsey Gibbs, who is the sports writer at Think Progress and the co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, something I highly recommend to everybody listening right now, uh, this is what we got here. We have this story with Cam Newton. I'm sure everybody heard it by now, but just for those who have not, what happened was last Wednesday afternoon, Carolina Panthers beat reporter for the Charlotte Observer, uh, Jordan Rodriguez, she asked Panthers quarterback Cam Newton a question about the way one of his wide receivers was running his roots. And what Newton said was... It's funny to hear a female talk about routes. Like, It's funny. And if you heard the silence after Newton said that, you'll know that nobody laughed. Then the story became even more complicated or confused when racist tweets emerged that Jordan Rodriguez had sent back in 2013. Jordan Rodriguez has issued an apology, and Cam Newton issued an apology as well. But I will say one thing we're not going to do is judge the apologies by Jordan Rodriguez 
and Cam Newton because there are few things I hate more on this earth than people from the sidelines assessing the apologies of others. There will be no apology sheriffs on this show. Instead, we're going to look at the politics of what took place. So what does all this mean? On the line, we have Lindsey Gibbs to help us make sense of it. On the line, as promised, here is Lindsay Gibbs. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for the Burn It All Down pod. It's fantastic work. It is in my rotation. Um, quick question for you. First and foremost about Cam Newton's comments, can you speak about your gut reaction when you heard uh, what he said, when you saw what took place? I was devastated. Um, I am actually a really big Carolina Panthers fan. I have been since the fifth grade, which is all but one year of their existence. And Cam Newton's my favorite player. I have his jersey. So from that, from a fan perspective and from a female sports writer perspective, it was it was really hurtful what he said. And I think for a lot of women in sports media, it took us immediately back to other other either outright sexist things we deal with on a daily basis or the microaggressions we deal with on a daily basis that make it seem from athletes and coaches from other men in the media or from fans that this isn't a space that we're supposed to be in now in so many respects i thought the most hopeful thing about the actual incident though was that nobody laughed that it it sort of dropped like a stone uh, you wrote about that as well. Like, wh- where do you think the place is now for women in sports media? I know you're relatively new at this career-wise, but you know stories we've heard in the past from people like Lisa Olson, Selena Roberts, some of the true pioneers of women in sports media. Where do you think we are, for better or worse? I think, I mean, we've definitely gotten better, but I think that as with a lot of things, once a certain amount of progress is made, I think a lot of people like to say, oh, well, that problem was solved. You know, like we're, Mm -hmm. we're, we're good there. You know, women are allowed in locker rooms now, so all is good. But I can tell you from conversations I have with women, particularly with women of color in this industry, that there's a lot they deal with on a daily basis. I listen to a lot of podcasts that are men who I know are great great people and great allies normally, but that never have women on, you know, never have women in the regular rotation. I listen to tons of sports podcasts that that don't feature any female voices at all. If you look at the top 100 on iTunes, I believe six podcasts feature regular female contributor. So the numbers are still really poor and there's still a long way to go until you know, women are kind of a regular part of the conversation, but we have, we have, you know, come a long way. So it's one of those things. And then the aspect of social media, obviously, uh, if Lisa Olson was uh, covering the New England Patriots when she was dealing with all that sexism, like I, I, I shudder to think what her social media feed would have looked like in the context of also dealing with that. So I'd speak a little bit about that, about the role of, that social media tries to play as kind of like this, this sexist incursion on women being able to just breathe freely and do their work in the world of sports media. 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously really tough. I mean, every time, you know, every time one of my tweets goes viral or, you know, goes goes beyond my initial network, I cringe because, you know, you're just going to get this certain amount of backlash about your appearance or about, you know, the fact that you're a woman and what do you know? Um, and that's, that's, you kind of learn how to deal with it on a daily basis, but that doesn't make it any, any easier. I think yesterday when the comments started going around, when a lot of people were jumping to camp, jumping uh, to the defense of Jordan, the reporter, and it's still, I had a lot of men in my mentions saying, well, look, that's how you would react like Cam reacted if we were in a bar and I knew all this stuff about makeup. And that was the, that was the analogy they were drawing, wow. which completely misses the point of like, this was in a professional setting. I was going to say you know, she, she was doing <laughs> her job. She, she's a beat reporter. He's seen her. She's worked that beat for a year. So that's they're not at all analogies, you know? And, and even though, like, I hate the whole reverse sexism line, blah, 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 like, like how would you feel? All that stuff drives me bananas. I will say this, though. Like, I've had male makeup artists, like, if I'm doing a TV experience, whatnot and if i said to that male makeup artist hey i'm shocked you know how to do your job having a (laughs) penis and all like that would be really offensive so obviously this story got a serious layer of complication uh when these old racist tweets by jordan rodriguez from i believe 2013 surfaced now those tweets ideally should exist independently of the story of what happened itself. But how did that part of the narrative complicate things for you? And what has that done to the discussions that you've gotten in with other female sports reporters? Well, I I admit I reacted really poorly when this first happened. Uh, Jordan is someone I've been I've known uh, her work and we've been talking, you know, for a year now. And I got, I got incredibly defensive of her and that was the wrong reaction. Um, her tweets were incredibly uh, hurtful and she, she knows that now, but the fact that she so, you know, casually, um, you know, tweeted these racist things just a few years ago, it's alarming. And look, it speaks to the fact that, you know, there's, there's not just a gender problem in media. There's a big race problem in media. And a lot of the women you do see getting ahead are white women like myself. And a lot of the men who are still in power are white men. And the athletes that we're covering are usually predominantly black, especially in sports like football. And so it's really problematic. And I think it's they were hurtful and they they need to be discussed and they should be discussed. And there, there has to be room for both conversations. And I think people like myself, I have to issue a mea culpa for anyone who saw me on, on social media yesterday. People like myself who immediately went to her defense did not do a good, really did harm to that conversation. And what's so difficult about that right now is, you know, th- there is this, I think, largely driven by white male over the age of 40 backlash against these NFL players taking a knee during the anthem and the need for all solidarity is so important right now. Like all hands on deck, whoever can support these players should. So anything that divides a potential Avenue for solidarity, like Cam Newton's comments and like the 2013 tweets just in this age of Trump and athletic protests just feels particularly toxic. 
Yeah, absolutely. And look, also going into this is the fact that it's Cam Newton. You can't separate the race conversation from the Cam Newton conversation. You just can't. And even as offended as I was by his comments to Jordan in the press conference, um, it, it was sickening to see all these people on their high horses who were clearly just looking for an okay reason to hate on Cam, you know, who had been, you know, whether it's his press conferences or whether it's the way he you know, all these just racist dog whistles that are part of the conversation when you're talking about Cam Newton. And honestly, when Dan and his his yogurt sponsor dropped him yesterday, it just seemed a little convenient. It seemed like maybe they've been looking since he raised his fist, you know, gave the black power uh, signal after scoring a touchdown last Sunday. Were they just looking for any excuse to be able to get out of this partnership? And, you know, so that's a big part of this as well. It, it, it is so bizarre, and this is why social media is such a maddening place to draw like broader societal conclusions and such a bizarre microcosm. Uh, but it's like to have people – if you're willing to defend Donald Trump, you know, a sexual predator in the White House, and you're using this opportunity to bash Cam, you just want to tell people like that to just stay out of the discussion altogether. And say the same thing about Harvey Weinstein. Like if this is somebody that you have defended or taken money from and now you're like, how dare Cam make this comment? That also feels a little disingenuous. And I think you can understand why some people are like, okay, if you're going to pile on Cam and you're going to support this president who's this monster of anti-female reaction, how how do you even square that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's why a lot of people saying – The common, you saw, I think, Peter King from Sports Illustrated. There were a lot of people who, when Cam said that, I saw all these people tweeting, it's 2017, come on, Cam. And I was like, is your 2017 the same as my 2017? Because the president just took away birth control for women. Right. Like, like, I, I just don't feel like you can, like, that's a legitimate thing to say. Like, it's just it's it's things like that are really ridiculous and make it realize that we're all a lot of us are living in different Americas, you know. Yeah, it's very disturbing. So you've, you've got this carnival of reaction on social media. You've got uh, this hideous president in the White House. You've got the Harvey Weinstein story. And this is one of the things about 2017 being so contradictory in the midst of all of this. You not only have terrific young women sports writers like yourself who I think do represent like a new way of doing things that is going to make everything better. In addition to that, you have this amazing WNBA finals and and the representation of that. And I I I just thought it was so badass. And I wanted to ask your question, like what was your takeaway from the Lynx Sparks final? I mean, it was just phenomenal. Look, it went five games like it always does. Every time these two teams play – no matter how much it seems like one team is in control, it's a one possession game with 30 seconds left. And I think that was true in at least three of the five games this year, the first, the second, and the fifth. And they just, they really bring out the best of each other. I mean, you've got Candace Parker on one end of the floor and Maya Moore on the other end of the floor. You've got mm-hmm. Sylvia Fowles, you've got Neko Gumake. I mean, these are just, these are the best athletes of our time, you know, forget any qualifiers there. These are just some of the elite athletes, elite competitors. And I just look, this rivalry, I think is going to take the WNBA to new heights and is just going to keep pushing forward the progress. We've had two, um, two finals in a row now this year and last year that have gone down to the final seconds. You know, L.A. won last year. Minnesota won this year. 
Um, it's, uh, in my opinion, I think it's the best rivalry in sports right now. And, and where does this last finals, you know, where does this put Maya Moore in your mind in the constellation of women basketball players or basketball players in general? I mean, four titles in seven years with the level of dominance that she's displayed. I mean, it's something that we have to take very seriously. So, yeah, so she's been, I mean, she's been a part of all of it, that core of her and Simone Augustus and um, Rebecca Brunson and Lindsay Whalen, the four of them mm-hmm. have won all four. And then Simone Augusta, I mean, uh, excuse me, Sylvia Fowles came in in 2015 um, and was added to the the crew, which what an addition that was. But, yep. you know, I, I mean, Maya Moore, she just wins. She always finds ways to win. I know, um, I believe you, among others, were tweeting out the statistics that I think she's not gone two years in her entire, like since high school without winning a championship, you know, and that's ridiculous. <laughs> so she's going to have to start, start to be in that goat conversation pretty darn so. soon. I yeah. mean, she's still pretty relatively young. I think she's mm-hmm. been in the league for six or seven years now. So you're going to eventually see her numbers actually, you know, getting to the goat level. I think that the only thing that's preventing her from being in that conversation right now is that, you know, she doesn't have Diana Taurasi's longevity yet, you know, mm-hmm. so if she can stay healthy and can keep amassing these numbers. Then she's going to, I mean, God, she could break all of the records. I mean, it's ridiculous, but you know, we're going to have to see if she can stay healthy. Does it matter that she might not be the best player on her own team, even if she's taken the key shot at the end of the game? And Sil- Sylvia's in a new place. And so Sylvia's it's... in a new place. I mean, I think she has been at times the best player on her team. You mm-hmm. know, for those first two, I believe she definitely was. But I think that um, – Look, Maya and Sylvia both elevate each other's games without a doubt. You, I don't think you can really have Sylvia's success unless the defense is so worried about what Maya is going to do, right? And and vice versa. Having Sylvia in there really opens things up a little bit for Maya. And, um, you know, look, these are team sports they're playing. They're not individual awards. But I think that what you're seeing from Maya is her kind of great, consistent greatness on a year-in, year-out level. This was technically like kind of a down year for her. And then mm-hmm. you look at the statistics at the end of the year and you're like, wow, she's mm-hmm. still like one of the best in the league without a doubt. Um, so I think that – I don't think it really hurts her that much. I mean I think it's something you have to consider for sure. But they play such different positions and they bring such different things to the table that um, to me it, it doesn't – it, it doesn't lessen the accomplishments. Do you have any unsung heroes or sheroes for this finals? Yeah, I mean, Rebecca Brunson got her fifth WNBA championship. She's the only player to ever have five, uh, which is just remarkable. She's 35 years old, I believe. I don't that I could be underselling that. And um, when she was on, when she was playing good defense, that's when everything changed for the Lynx because the Sparks dominated in a few games. You know, they really had stretches where they were the dominant players. And during those stretches, that was when Rebecca Brunson was being very ineffective. It was when Rebecca really took her level to another gear that things really changed. I mean, she's just so good on defense this year. So this is something that's really cool. After the finals last year, at the age of in her mid thirties, after so many years in the league, she decided that she was going to add the three-point shot to her game <laughs> at this point in her career. And she did. She's taken, I believe, like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but a, a, a 
pro large proportion of the, the three-point shots she's taken in her entire career have been this season. So to have the commitment to add something like that to your game that helps really stretch the floor and helps add another element to your team and to how dangerous your team can be. And she took some, I don't know if they were officially threes in the final, but she hit some long shots that really showed that her ability now to score from the outside opened up the game and really changed things for the Lynx. And I just think that's so impressive. Mm. Her name is Lindsay Gibbs. She writes for Think Progress. People should follow her on Twitter and everything she does. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And now it's time for the part of the show we call the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award, this was a no-brainer for me. It goes to, to Cedric Ingram-Lewis and Larry McCullough. This is some important stuff right here. These are two football players who go to Victory Praise Academy High School. And what Cedric Ingram-Lewis did was he raised his fist during the anthem. And what Larry McCullough did was take a knee. And their coach, who's an ex-Marine, kicked them off the team before game time. Basically following Donald Trump's orders. Now, let's talk about this for a second. First and foremost, as you might guess, Victory Praise Academy is a uh, private school. Big shocker there. It's a private Christian school, and therefore I don't think the players are protected by the Supreme Court who have ruled that in public institutions you can't actually kick them off the team. Although I bet if uh, Mr. Lewis and McCullough sued the school, they would have one hell of a case because I'll bet you dollars to donuts Victory Praise Academy uh, gets public money some way, shape, or form from the state of Texas because that's the charter schoolization of the United States is exactly in schools like Victory Praise Academy. We are on the case. We are not going to throw away this story. I'm going to contact the ACLU. I'm going to find out if Victory Praise Academy has the right to do this. But I just want these two young men to know, Cedric Ingram-Lewis, Larry McCullough, we stand with you and we stand with your sacrifice. This week on the second best podcast produced by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, they actually have one hell of a show and it truly is one of my favorite podcasts. They're going to be speaking to E.J. Dion, the longtime Washington Post columnist on America after Trump, what it could look like. If there is an America after Trump, I'm sure that'll be part of the conversation. We have Ari Berman, uh, who's going to be speaking with John about gerrymandering at the Supreme Court. And Joan Walsh will speak about her conversation last week with Hillary Rodham Clinton. That's this week on Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. Available at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now it's time for the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. It goes to racist fans in Kansas City throwing the N-word on Terrell Pryor of the Washington football team. Now, there are a couple things to say about this. First and foremost, racist fans are the worst. The absolute worst. Take their tickets, tear them up, throw them out the stadium for life. Second thing is sports writers who deny the existence of racist fans and say that athletes make it up because what's better than getting death threats and being called a liar by the sports community of the world online and all that crap? Listen, they're the worst too. Sports writers who are like racial truthers are the worst. 
And you know what else is the worst? That we have a team in Washington, D.C. that's named after a racial slur. Because there are studies that show that the existence of mascotting of Native Americans actually increases racism and racial tensions. And so you had it at the Chiefs versus the R-words. You have people dressed up in the Kansas City crowd in red face and feathers. And then racism happens. I mean, my goodness, this is like watching a couple kids rub sticks together, sparks fly up, and then you're shocked there's a fire. Give me a break. And then the last thing is sit your ass down, Donald Trump, because how can you not be totally convinced that there's not a connection between Donald Trump's comments about the NFL, all the racial invective that black players and coaches have received online and death threats, and then this fan who feels like he has the power called Terrell Pryor the N-word. It makes me absolutely sick. So sit your ass down, you racist-ass fans, and find yourself a seat in the hottest corner of hell. Now it's time for the show we call Kaepernick Watch. Colin Kaepernick Watch. All I'm going to say for Kaepernick Watch is people who say that Colin Kaepernick is being silent, I'm going to argue aren't really doing enough listening because he's still out there doing the Know Your Rights program. He was just out in New York City uh, giving away backpacks and back-to-school supplies to folks, and the pictures that came out of that were unbelievable. And all it highlights to me once again is the broken moral compass of the National Football League that there is no place for Colin Kaepernick. Every time an awful quarterback is signed, we feel the outrage that Colin Kaepernick is still on the sidelines being blackballed or whiteballed because he can't find a place in the National Football League. It's absolutely absurd. We're going to keep covering this story, but we're also going to keep covering the grassroots activism of Colin Kaepernick as we push forward. And now's the time for the show. Before we wrap up, we got a bunch of calls this week. There's one call in particular that I wanted to play. Let's listen to it together right now. Hey, Dave. This is Mark from Pennsylvania. Uh, I just want to ask you a question about something. See, I find myself in an interesting situation. I'm doing exactly what Donald Trump wants. I'm boycotting the NFL. But it's not for the reason he wanted everyone to do that. I I decided to boycott the NFL shortly before the season started um, until... Colin Kaepernick was signed up you know, on a team. And uh, as far as I know, he still hasn't, so I'm still boycotting the NFL. But as you know, Donald Trump is calling for the NFL to be boycotted because teams are not punishing players for um, taking a knee during the National Anthem. I actually decided myself not to stand for the National Anthem uh, until further notice either. So here's my situation. I'm thinking, should I continue to boycott the NFL? Presumably the reason to boycott the NFL is so that it'll hit the owners where it hurts and, you know, they'll make some kind of change. But what if enough people like me and people who follow Donald Trump, who are obviously doing it for different reasons, cause enough of a ratings drop for the, N- uh, for the NFL owners that um, um, they decide to make a change. However, Donald Trump will just turn around and say, 
oh, see, people are boycotting the NFL. Your ratings are down. It's because you didn't uh, fire these these players. So I'm wondering if I'm working against uh, the common good or the right thing to do by continuing to boycott. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Hey, Dave, thanks for all your good work, and um, I look forward to hearing your response. It doesn't have to be uh, on the air, but... Uh, but I know a lot of people might be in the same boat, actually. All right, thanks, Dave. Stay frosty. Thank you so much for that call, and thank you for saying stay frosty at the end. Look, yes, I have gotten that uh, conundrum question from so many people, people who heard about the NAACP's calls for a boycott because of Colin Kaepernick and now find themselves wondering, wait a minute, am I empowering Donald Trump by boycotting the sport? Look, this is my take on it, and it's been my take on it from the beginning. There are so many reasons to boycott the National Football League, from the billions of dollars that they take out of public monies and that could be used for other projects, for their stadiums, to uh, CTE, to their treatment of women. I mean, there are so many reasons, and you put Colin Kaepernick on top of that. It is a dirty business, and so if people out there feel like this business is too dirty for them to support, hell with Donald Trump. Make your own political call on that and stand with it strongly and explain it to people. And even if it gets vexing, if Trump takes credit for the lower ratings, you got to be right with yourself. And if that's where your moral compass is headed, then that's where you got to walk. On the flip side, if someone said to me, hey, I really just want to watch the NFL still uh, because I want to support these players, to me, that's cool too. It's like that is something that, that is very real. I mean, I heard the head of the Seattle NAACP, Gerald Hankerson, at a rally that we did outside of Seahawks Stadium uh, for Michael Bennett and the protesting Seahawks, where he said he's not going to be boycotting the NFL because he wants to show these Seahawks players that he supports them. And that's cool, too. And lastly, you know, life is hard. We all know that. And these times are hard. And if watching football gets your mind off stuff for a little bit, watch some football. You know, the world is not going to rise and fall on the basis of whether you watch a football game. And Donald Trump is going to Donald Trump. He'll have a new racist target shortly by the time this is out. I mean, as we're having this conversation, he's doing evil shit. And he's going to move more evil shit in the days to come that's going to be so crazy we don't remember the evil shit he's doing today. Because that's how he rolls. And you know what? We belong in the streets right now. I was so proud to be at the March for Racial Justice last weekend. That's the kind of work we're going to have to be doing. Like, this fight is not going to be won or lost on the basis of the NFL games we watch. So I would just say, like, follow what your head says it needs to do at this point and definitely find a way, whether you're watching the NFL or not, to support players who are putting it on the line to keep this discussion about racism and police violence going. And now, before we wrap up, we got a new segment on the show. It may just be for one week, but we'll call it our moment of Zyron. That's kind of like our moment of Zen, but I'm saying moment of Zyron. And this is a call I took on C-SPAN from the Republican line in Alabama about the player protests. Please listen to the comment and my response. Our guest is Dave Zyron, and Cheryl is joining us on the Republican line from Alabama. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, he is just talking about your speaker is just talking on one side of the nation. He should have listened to Cal Thomas, your guest that was on before him. And uh, everybody don't take his opinion. So 
that's just all I wanted to say. Oh. Well, thank you, Cheryl. I do appreciate the call. And I want to give a shout out to uh, Bruce Maxwell, who's also from Alabama, who plays for the Oakland A's, who became the first player to take a knee in Major League Baseball. Uh, so a Alabama produces uh, some tremendous folks on all sides of the political divide. I did listen to Cal Thomas and what he had to say. Um, I come at this from an extremely different point of view. I, I do think that protest and protesting during the anthem is a completely legitimate, peaceful form of protest. And I am exhausted with a president who seems to be so angry at NFL players engaging in peaceful protest, yet says very fine people march with swastikas. Ah, I hope you feel zenful after that. Well, that's all we got for this week's show. I just want to give a big shout-out, first and foremost, to my co-producers, David Tigabu and Daniel Baker, who's finally back. I also want to give a big shout-out and thank you to Michael Lee for coming, actually, into our makeshift studio and doing this discussion face-to-face. -face. Thank you, Lindsay Gibbs, for your honesty and brilliance. And thank you to all our listeners out there. We really do appreciate you. We're going to have a new way that you can support the show in just less than a week's time. So as you're listening to this, keep an eye out for that. You can follow us on Twitter at Edge of Sports Pod. You can also contact me, Dave Zirin, whenever you want at Edge of Sports. You can call us with your thoughts about who should get the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Down Award. 401-426-3343. And please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. You can subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.